Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Please take up your Bibles again. We're going to turn uh, to God's Word in uh, Hebrews chapter 9. It's on page 1005. If you've got one of the blue, larger prints, it's 1192. But Hebrews chapter 9, and we're going to read verses 1 to 14. Let's listen to God's words to us. If you remember in chapter 8, he's just given us Jeremiah's prophecy of a new covenant. 9 verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, an Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Amen. Now this evening we've got a glorious word from the Lord in Hebrews 9. It's a word of, of freedom, a word of joy, but to, to really experience those things, freedom and joy, it can 
just feel pretty elusive day to day, uh, if you're anything like me, perhaps. Each, each new year, we, we hope to make it one where we're going to thrive, or each day we, we get up and think, today it's going to be a good one. But then, as often we find our lives get entangled, don't we? Things outside of us, outside of our control make it difficult, whether, I don't know, ill health or family pressures or, or stuff at work, perhaps. That's nothing, is it, compared to what's inside of us, our internal struggles, fear, frustration, bitterness, jealousy, guilt. That can feel like chains holding us back, and we, we long to live a life of freedom. And as Christians know, we don't mean a freedom that's just kind of to live in a selfish way to, to satisfy every sinful desire I have, but instead a, a freedom uh, to really live with God himself. That's what we want, isn't it? A freedom to enjoy him, to worship him with all we have through the ordinary, through the extraordinary, from you know, washing up to singing praises with his people. And you know that that freedom that we so want, it comes through the incredible work of Christ. What he's achieved, objectively, in reality, for real, and as we we let that sink deeper into our hearts, then things begin to change. So so tonight, Hebrews, it's going to first open up to us what life without Christ uh, is like, so we then really see what Jesus has achieved for us so that we might worship him in freedom. Uh, Now, now the passage we'll be uh, looking at tonight, it's off the back of what we read last week, Jeremiah's great promise of the new covenant. And there we saw that the new covenant, it's founded on a promise of true power. And it's there in 8 verse 12, if you just look back, it says, For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. God's dealing with things on a deeper level. He deals with sin itself. And in the next few chapters of Hebrews, the writer is going to unwrap this amazing truth for us. And he does that in chapter 9 by by opening up two aspects of life that are pointing, first of all, to this deep problem of our sin. And he gets us to look at the old covenant way of worship. Uh, See that in 9 verse 1. Now, even the first covenant... So he's talking about the Mosaic Covenant there, the the covenant given to Moses. The first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. So that's the first thing, the old kind of way of worshiping. But he also gets us to look at something else, and it's our conscience. Look at verse 9. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Our conscience, what's our conscience? It's that inner voice, isn't it? It's, a, it's that voice that seems to actually know us very well. That voice that is especially concerned with right and wrong. That voice that kind of pushes us one way or another. It's strange, it's kind of outside of us. We can have a conversation with it, and yet it's inside of us. And so the writer wants us, okay, he wants us to look at the old. He wants us to look at the old way of doing things, because it guides our guilty conscience. I'll say that again. He wants us to look at the old because it guides our guilty conscience. Now, we'll all have experienced a guilty conscience at some point, I'm sure. You know, our, our consciences can have an extraordinary memory. It rakes up the past, doesn't it? Sin and hurt, it taunts us. 
You won't forget that, will you? Because you can't. Deeply wrong. Or, 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 now, now, we may have gone against what God said is good, or we may have gone against what we think is good. But either way, we've crossed a line, haven't we? We've said, here's what's good, and here's what's not, and I'm going to step deliberately across. Now, I know this uh, for myself. I'm not going to air all my dirty laundry before you, don't worry. But there, there are comments I've made. There are things I've done that I've deeply regretted, and my, my conscience can bring them up again. I re-experience all the guilt, the, the shame all over again. Kind of my face flushes, my heart sinks, I, I fear seeing the person again. And we sang, we sang of a guilty conscience just now. In Psalm 32, that second verse, when I kept my silence concerning my wrong, so he's guilty, but it, it, it's this conscience, my body decayed as I moaned all day long, by day and by night under your heavy hand, my strength was consumed in a dry, fevered land. But it's one thing to have a guilty conscience. But we also need to ask ourselves, well, what does it mean? What's it pointing to? Now, it's important to say our consciences, they're not infallible guides, are they? Um, we know this. Sometimes my conscience will be making me feel guilty uh, when, in fact, I've done nothing wrong. But other times, I might feel like I'm totally innocent when I've done wrong all over the place. But as we put a guilty conscience alongside the old covenant, we start to see some really important things because we've got to look at that old way of doing things in the old covenant to guide us. Because firstly, the old uh, points us to this, to access denied, access denied. Now the writer, um, he starts by taking us by the hand, leading us through the old tabernacle. This is a a great tent, first built back in the desert after God's people left Egypt, and it was the place of worship, and he leads us through. Did you notice that in verses 1 to 6? He shows us the sights. We we enter the first section. There's the great lampstand. I don't know if you've seen pictures of it, kind of seven stems to it, Uh, and then there's a table with some bread on it, and that's called the holy place, that area. And then we see a curtain, a giant curtain blocking the way to the second section. Now, the writer gives us kind of a sneak look into the most holy place behind that curtain uh, where we see the Ark of the Covenant. It's covered with gold, with golden angels above the mercy seat. That's the the, the top of the Ark. But he quickly takes us back out, back out of that most holy place because he wants us to know why there are two sections to it. Because if we were around at the time, we would have seen lots of people going in to that first section, verse 6. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. The priests going in and out regularly, lots of access into the holy place. But not so the most holy place. Verse 7, but into the second only the high, sorry, into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking bloods, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Okay, so there was only one guy who went in once a year. The, the, the most holy place for the rest of the time, it was barred, barred by a curtain. And the writer explains, verse 8, by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened. Access denied. Our sin, he's saying, has produced a barrier. 
We cannot be in the presence of God himself. His, his utter purity consumes it, destroys it. He cannot have it in his presence. Like oil and water, sin does not mix with God. You know, it's like if we, if we went to visit someone important, I don't know, in government, or you, you, you had to go and speak to your, your company CEO or something, we know we wouldn't be allowed in to meet them in our dirty clothes that, you know, that should have been washed ages ago. It's a barrier, and, and sin creates a barrier. That, that, that curtain blocking the most holy place, a great symbol of access denied. Now, once a year, one person got to go in. On the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, it was a glimpse of reconciliation. You know, having a priest in that most holy place, it showed, you know, hang on a sec, there's hope. Perhaps we can enter God's presence. Perhaps we can know him. And then the high priest comes out again. And you wait for another year. Our sin means access denied. The thing is, our guilty conscience, it knows this. When you've done something wrong and you hide from someone else because of it, there it is in miniature. We dread being found out. We dread people seeing us as we truly are. And we hide. And that, that impulse to hide, it's a, it's a pointer to show us that sin creates a barrier. The barrier is real with God. The old shows it. And our guilty conscience points to it. We can't meet God covered in our sin. Access denied. But it's not just that what is, is good, coming to be with God, is taken away. It's also, secondly, a penalty awaits. A penalty awaits. We have a, a death sentence sitting over us. Not just that we will die, but we'll, we'll be shut out from God's goodness under his wrath. Just like when criminals break the law, so when we break God's law, there's a penalty for it. A real payment for our sin. God is just. And again, the old shows us this. It shows us this through sacrifices. Now, sacrifices, they're the death of an animal in the place of a human being. Okay? They're a substitute, a swap. One dies, and so the other doesn't. So uh, as live animals, if you imagine uh, the tabernacle back in the day, as live animals were slaughtered day after day after day, so worshippers were reminded of the penalty, the penalty that awaits the sinner, because the animal dies. Now, the old did show that substitution was possible. The animal did go in the place of a human. But in that old, it was always limited. We see that in verse 7. Did you notice that the Day of Atonement sacrifices were for the unintentional sins of the people? It's not covering all sins. And then verse 9. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Why? Verse 10. Because they're, they're regulations of the body. In other words, it's surface. They're symbolic. The washings, you know, they can wash the body, because they're washings, they wash the body, not the soul. The sacrifices, they point to a need of a substitute, but they cannot in the end cleanse our guilty conscience. It's like we saw last week, there's power missing. There's power missing in the old covenant. It lacks a true and real way to bring forgiveness. So the sacrifices show that blood is needed. That doesn't mean just a little transfusion, but blood of a death, human blood. They show penalty is death, a, a penalty awaits. If there's no substitute, then his death hits, the death hits the sinner, the guilty one. And again, this, this makes sin, 
sense of our guilty conscience. Like, this is why we have one. Because the racked conscience, oh, don't we just long to get rid of it? We long to be rid of its weight, its burden, because we know there are consequences. You know, like, like Lady Macbeth trying to scrub and scrub ourselves clean, and yet it won't go. Like we, like we can try to cover it with layer upon layer of good works to somehow make up for it and get rid of it all. I recently read of an American pornography millionaire guy called Rob Black who wore a medallion which had inside of it a parchment saying, whoever dies wearing this shall not suffer eternal fire. That's what he was wearing, all to try and avoid a penalty he knew that should await him. Our guilty conscience points us to the truth of the penalty. And a longing to be free of it, but not knowing how. So what do we see in the, the old covenant worship? It guides us, it guides that guilty conscience. And it all points us, it points us to access denied and a penalty awaits and God wants us to be listening to that guilty conscience, because if it's, if it's not clean, there's a problem. It's reminding us of these deep truths. We cannot know God, and we will not know God without a substitute. If you're not a Christian here, have you ever listened to your guilty conscience? Have you ever acknowledged it and thought about what it means? If you let it act like a symptom of a deeper disease and let it point you to the separation from God himself. But it might be your conscience is a bit deadened. Even, even as you look at the wreckage of your life behind you, you just can't see it as your own fault. You just see your good works. I'm, I'm a good person, you say. It's like the Pharisee in Jesus' story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. You know, rather than destroy your sin and crying to God for mercy, you, you look to the heavens and tell God actually how good you've been. If that's you tonight, let the two rooms of the old covenant teach you. As you see the second curtain in front of you firmly shut, start to listen to it. Ask for God to awaken you and show you the truth of your guilt before him. Are you listening to your guilty conscience? But the writer, the writer doesn't want us to stop there. He doesn't leave us in verse 9. He doesn't leave us with stained guilty consciences. Instead, he wants us to receive the new. We've, we've looked at the old because it guides our guilty conscience. But here he wants us to receive the new because it creates a cleansed conscience. He wants us to receive the new because it creates a cleansed conscience. God has extraordinary good news for his people tonight. And not surprisingly, it's all centered around Jesus. Verse 11, but when Christ appears. What an amazing few words. There is good news. God hasn't left everyone in their sin and shame and guilt. Instead, he's provided a solution, a wonderful salvation from our true guilt before him and our guilty consciences that torment us. The new covenant brings exactly what we need in its mediator, Jesus. Firstly, it's through access gained. Access gained, let's look at um, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, uh, then through the greater, more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, 
He entered once for all into the most holy place, into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. Here again, those central words, he entered once for all into the holy places. Rather than leading us through the the earthly tabernacle, the writer now leads us up to the heavenly tabernacle, into heaven itself, the place that is distinct from this creation, the place of God's supreme presence, the real and true most holy place. And as he leads us in, he doesn't point us to furnishings and tables. Instead, he shows us a human being. A human being who isn't just allowed in there only briefly, but a human who remains, a priest who sits down in heaven, This is a real entry into the most holy place. It's not with animal blood, but with his own blood. We'll come back to that. And he enters permanently. It's once for all time. You know, rather than reconciliation just glimpsed as the high priest pops in temporarily, it's access gained completely, securely. As the writer says, thus securing an eternal redemption. In your your imagination, somehow seeing Jesus Christ in heaven itself, that speaks a better word to us. That speaks a word of eternal redemption, of access gained, of of the way to God himself opened up. That's why the, the temple curtain was torn in two as Christ died. The barrier was lifted between God and man. The two sections no longer remain for God's people. Christ is ascended into heaven itself. Our our priest is before God. As we've seen in Hebrews already, he's living to intercede for us. But even his, his presence in itself shows us this profound truth. God's people can come to the God of the universe. Christ goes as a forerunner for us. He's our representative. He's our high priest to bring us reconciliation. And his permanent presence shows us access gained. It's one forever, once for all time, eternal redemption. We can come before God. We can come as children of the Most High God, co-heirs with Christ. We're able to say the most startling word, Father. Why? Because Jesus Christ entered once for all time into the holy places. But if we take a step back, how can this actually be true for us too? Yes, it's true for him, but why us? Why us? What has Jesus offered as our priest that means that it's true for us too? We know our our guilty consciences condemn us. We know we sin. We break God's law and uh, and our own laws too. How can we have access Well, it's because access gained is through penalty paid. It's through penalty paid. Verse 12, Christ enters once for all by the means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. Christ's entry is through his blood. Now that means through his violent, blood-spilling death as he was nailed to the cross by the Romans 2,000 years ago. Now, verse 13, the writer works from the lesser to the greater. He says, 
For, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. In other words, if the sacrifice of the Old Testament actually did something, which they did, they purified the flesh of the believer, they did do something for the outer person. If that's true, then, verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living gods. If those sacrifices did something, how much more will the blood of Christ do everything we need? And it was penalty paid. Notice what the writer says. He, he offered himself without blemish. That is, there was no sin on him, no guilt, no defiled conscience for Jesus, no breaking of God's law, no line cross, no unkind word, no jealous thought, no selfish desire. He could have entered without a substitute. He had no need of a substitute, and that means then his blood was not spilt for himself. He didn't die on that cross for his own sin. He didn't enter the most, only, most holy place fearful for his own life. No, his blood was spilt for others. His blood, and because it was offered by the eternal spirit, in other words, because it was empowered by his divine nature, it was offered for all, for all his people, every single one of them. That's his offering. It's a pure, full sacrifice of himself, and so the penalty's paid. Sin's completely got rid of. It's washed away. It's swept out to the sea, never to be seen again. It's thrown further uh, from the, uh, than the east is from the west. It's destroyed. It's gone. Sin gone. Isn't that incredible? But listen to where that takes us. Verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ do what? Purify our conscience from dead works. Purify our conscience. Access gained, penalty paid, it means our conscience is cleansed. The new creates a cleansed conscience, objectively, really. For those of us in Christ, we have nothing on our conscience because sin has been dealt with. It's cleansed, it's washed. As I stand before God, there is nothing as a blot on the paper of my life. There's no lies, there's no exploded temper, there's no sexual history, there's nothing. Every sin, past, present, and future. This is true of every Christian person, young and old, male and female, rich and poor. Christ's death on the cross, his resurrection and his entry into heaven means you are in the clear, completely righteous in God's courtroom. That the new creates a cleansed conscience. And for all of us, for all of us, God wants us to experience that. If you're not a Christian here tonight and your guilt plagues you, you actually look back at your life badly lived, there's regret there's personal hate, a gnawing of your soul. And you, you've heard that guilt. And to be honest, it can lead to despair. 
will take a step away from that road to despair and lift your heart to Jesus because with him tonight, with him, there is forgiveness. Just imagine it. Your sin wiped clean. Wiped clean before God and so your conscience purified. Rather than just trying hard to forgive yourself or trying just to forget by pushing your guilt deeper and deeper down, you can know that there's been justice. It's been completely atoned for. Because for those who know Jesus, as he died on that cross, it's as if we were punished, but actually it's all on Jesus. Our sin has not just been forgotten. It has faced the justice it deserved. It's properly meted out but on our sacrifice, our substitute, our representative, Jesus Christ. And so forgiveness, it's real. It's right. God is just. And so you can't earn this. You can't try and be good to have a clean conscience. Complete defeats the point of Jesus dying. It's saying it wasn't enough. Instead, it's received. Received with a grateful heart. Come to your high priest today. Ask for forgiveness for a cleansed conscience. Receive Jesus, you might experience it. But for those of us who have known true forgiveness in Christ, who've walked with him, sometimes our consciences can lie to us, can't they? Sometimes it can taunt us with guilt that isn't there. Perhaps that's you. You, you know in your head you're forgiven. But actually past sins keep eating away at you. This isn't, I don't think, a sin you've, you've never brought to the light. For that, you might need to heed your guilty conscience. But instead, for, for sin, you, you know you've repented of. You've brought it to God, and yet it still seems to cling to you. Your, your conscience still condemns you. You turn up at church afraid someone's going to find out you're a fraud. Actually, you've been coming to church less and less because of it. But day by day, we need to take God at his word. At his word, that the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, will purify our conscience from dead works. Christ's death is enough. If you remember nothing else from tonight, know that Christ's death is enough. Access gained, penalty paid. And so that sin, a sin that gnaws at you, yes, you may have to still deal with its consequences in your daily life. Yes, it was still wrong. Yes, it was, it was right to mourn it before God in the first instance. We must repent. But in Christ, it's gone now. It's not before God in heaven at all, so it doesn't have to be before you. So just this evening, come back to God and receive his words of the cross. His death is enough, even for your sin, for my sin, even for the sin that no one else knows about. And then tomorrow, come back to God and receive his word of the cross, the same. Receive his word that Christ's blood has been shed for you. And then the next day, receive his word for you. And then the next day, may we just not just know of the cross, but may we be people who experience a cleansed conscience, a real experience. Receive the new because it creates a cleansed conscience.
to finish. The writer just brings us, brings this to its final home. Verse 14, the blood of Christ will purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God, to serve the living God. That's the goal of all this. Looking at the old, receiving the new, it's all for the sake of worship. It's all for the sake of worship. That's what it's about. This is what eternal redemption is. This is why Jesus died in his heaven so we can worship the living God, the God of life. We can be with him. We can know him. We can enjoy him. Enjoy him in all works of our life, in the ordinary and the extraordinary. This is where freedom lies. With our sin washed away, we now stand before God, not as slaves, but as children. With our, our, our real sin and its penalty paid, we're, we're free. Here is freedom. And here's the, the objective truth. Sin does not have a hold on us. Instead, we're pure. Death does not have the final word. Instead, we're alive. Satan cannot accuse us. Instead, we are safe, free to worship God, to come to him with praise and thanksgiving, to come before his throne of grace in boldness and confidence, resting in the blood of Jesus, our Savior. But it's not just an objective reality. It's, it's subjective. Day to day, we're free. We're free to experience life-giving worship. Rather than held back, pulled down by the weight of our sin and shame, we can move forwards. We can enjoy coming to God in, in prayer, singing praise. Even as we sin, we, we come quickly to his throne to repent and grow in holiness, just as we do each, each Sunday together. We can move forward with those around us by, by repenting to those we've sinned against and forgiving those who've sinned against us. We can move forward with ourselves and allowing ourselves to move on, to be able to silence a lying conscience and instead come back to God's covenantal words and find rest in them. I will be their God and they will be my people. I am yours and you are mine. Look to the old, but receive the new for the sake of worship. Let's pray. We're just going to have a moment of quiet. Perhaps for you to, just a moment to bring to light a guilty conscience before God. Or perhaps, again, to hear the word of Christ of a purified conscience.
Father, who are we to receive your extraordinary grace? But those words, when Christ appeared, of the good things that have come, oh Lord, we praise you for our Savior, Lord Jesus Christ, that he appeared, that he came and died is in heaven itself once for all. We praise you and thank you. Amen.